Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by dispatch dispatch media come to the dispatch.com for access to all of the wonders of the known universe um and maybe a chance to win the monkey's paw that grants all of your wishes uh we have decursified it though so there's no uh there's no bitter life destroying aftertaste it's just pure monkey paw goodness so uh very excitingly uh we have uh now I can just just get to say my returning colleague. Um, he's already achieved gold star, gold jacket status. He has not yet achieved something that only Jim Garrity so far has achieved, which is when we open the dispatch deli, he will get a sandwich named after him. Which is uh, a tragedy because if anyone should have a sandwich in this universe named after them, it is I, sir. It is I. And of course, if you couldn't tell, because we sound we are we are auditory doppelgangers. Uh, according to some strange people out there, uh, that's Chris Starwalt, uh, a contributing editor to the Dispatch, colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, former Fox News politics editor guy, um, and uh, and all around uh, West Virginia mensch. So, um, Chris, we were doing this a little on the early side. I will tell you, uh, I I have not had concentrated in such a small period of time. Hmm. in the morning so much so many bad takes from so many different directions it's, um it's, i'm i'm, I'm going to walk you through okay i'm going to walk you through like the, just the my first hour of media consumption this morning get up at 5 30 play a little star trek fleet command take the dogs out get uh turn on i, I listen to npr often if i'm not listening to a podcast when i'm walking the dogs get i catch like the last third of a uh piece on black lives matter movement where i hear the reporters say while the head of black lives or one of the three co-founders of black lives matter says she is a marxist she believes that this that 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 this fact is being distorted to um cast black lives matter in a bad light and then they go to experts talking about how in the past uh they they the pernicious they anti-civil rights people were used charges of communism to discredit the black lives uh, to discredit the civil rights movement and that's happening again even though they've already stipulated that she says she's a marxist but when she says she's a marxist she only wants to feed poor people and when paul when paul robeson went to the soviet union uh and to try to shame uh running dog capitalist imperialists in the united states and said that it's better over here and communism has answers for black people that wasn't made up right this right. is a thing. <clears throat> uh, Martin Luther King uh, certainly uh, was curious about the virtues of Soviet communism. 
Um, and that's this is not an unheard of thing. And in fact, I didn't hear the segment. I also listened to NPR this morning. Uh, and it's <clears throat> forcing everything through, whether you want to say critical race theory or social justice prism, pushing everything through there marries well with Marxism, right? Those, sure. those, th- those things live well together. Uh, and it's not surprising that there'd be overlap frequently. Yeah. And all my only point was, is like, they were, they were trying to make people who criticize her as being a communist, um, into some sort of grand disinformation thing. Like the yeah. election was stolen when in fact she, they stipulated that she was a synonym for a communist, a Marxist. Okay. But then, so I listened to that. And then I listened to a very strange interview with the chancellor of, uh, New York city schools, Rachel Martin, who I like a lot. And she was interviewed and I just, these, they kept grilling her. She kept grilling the chancellor about well, what are you going to do to people who like who want to keep doing Zoom school? And the yeah. chancellor had the right answer: nothing. <laughs> she, um, the uh, that was was that uh, Cora Col- Colvin who was doing. I think I think that's I, right. I think that but maybe whoever whoever was doing the interview, they let her off. Uh, so the the chancellor was or commissioner was was excellent in her answer. She was brisk, positive, uh, and pretty frank, or about as frank as a public official in New York is going to be able to be, and. I was fascinated by the pushback from the anchor or the interviewer because it was like, well, what about people who don't learn well in school? What about right. people? And I'm like, well, that's bad if, you know, and, and the uh, chancellor said, well, we are, we're going to try to make every accommodation. But what about people who just want to stay home? What if you just like learning at home? What if that's better for you? And I thought, have we, you know, <clears throat> coming back from the pandemic, I, it, it, if you'll indulge me, I want to read you, sir. A sign. I went to dinner last night, and there was a sign. There was a sign outside the restaurant uh, that said, "Polite notice: Proper dress required. Thank you for not wearing gym attire, sweatpants, tank tops, hats, clothing with offensive language or images, comma exposed undergarments." <laughs> and first of all, I said to the hostess, "I show a little bra strap just to you know for some sizzle." Just to mm-hmm. let people know that, you know, I know what's up. Um, but number two, how badly has our coronavirus skewed people's expectations for functioning in human society? If you have to put a sign outside the Capitol Grill that's like, uh, they'll wear your bra out uh, in public here <laughs> when you come to have dinner. And I thought we've got it. the learning curve coming back is going to be steep. Um, I often will just show a little just that little glint of chrome when i wear my spaghetti straighter and cod piece um <laughs> because i get a little i get a little tired of telling people my eyes are up here sir um you gotta let them know you gotta let them know but okay so then right, more bad media consumption i then turn on morning joe to catch michelle goldberg no relation of the new york times and uh rosenblatt or whatever his name is from adl talking about anti-Semitic attacks in America. And I'm listening to Michelle Goldberg say some really bad things. And then I'm like, why, do I, why am I listening to Michelle Goldberg about any of this, uh, about Israel stuff? And then I open up Twitter and I see that she has a piece today that says, uh, attacks over America, attacking American Jews over Israel is a gift to the right wing. Yep. Do I have that right? Attacks on Jews. The headline, attacks on Jews over Israel are a gift to the right. Right. And 
like she's a very left wing person, whatever. That's fine. I would still have advised her if you're going to draw up a list of the reasons why random assaults on Jews on the streets of America are bad. I would have, I would have put that somewhere around nine or 10 and started with random assaults on human beings for things they didn't do Period. are bad or something Period. a lot to right. that effect. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. 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 And, um, it is, it, it, that is sort of the geopolitical meta historical taking Republicans pounce to the, to the nth yeah. dimension kind of thing. It was really kind of amazing. That is the, the, uh, um, ad nauseum of, uh, Republicans pounce. So this is the, so you bend time and it folds back on themselves on itself so that you're pre pouncing. Right. So this is like, this That's is, right. uh, it's, it's, um, what was the movie with Tom Cruise, uh, that I never saw, but where they, Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, oh no. Pre, oh, 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 uh, minority report. Minor, this is the minority report version of Republicans pounce. You know, they're going to pounce. So just stop beating Jews in the streets. Just take a break at least until we get past midterms guys. So, um, I, I'm going to just sort of stipulate, I know you would probably do it yourself, but I don't run to you for granular analysis of things Hebraic, um, fair, 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 uh, fair. and nor should anyone run to me for it, but I've been on a cause, bit cause of my, G- my sandwich at your deli will have bacon on it when I eventually <laughs> get, when okay. I eventually get my sandwich to go next to Garrity, which I assume will be like uh, two potatoes uh, with a, another potato in between. Mine will definitely have bacon on it. So no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not MOT. Um, but, and maybe I should talk to, get, get Tevi on here to do this. He volunteers his Jewish services for me all the time. <laughs> but um, uh, most of the videos, not all, like the LA ones are a little different, but most of the videos I see, people are attacking Hasid's right? The members of the ultra-Orthodox, you know, depending on what label you want to put on them. Um, and the f- funny ha-ha is the wrong term, but like the weird thing, the ironic thing about this is that if you were going to randomly select a category of Jewish American who has the least to do with Israel's mm. policies vis-a-vis the Palestinians, it would probably be one of these people, either because there are a fringe group of anti, anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, yep. uh, ultra-Orthodox. You see them at those Iran Holocaust-denying conferences. But also, big chunks of the ultra-Orthodox do not serve in the military in Israel, as far as I know. And right. so they're, you can't even say the people who look like this guy are baby killers. And the thing about it is, is that they've just, the people who attack these ultra-Orthodox because of what Israel is doing, first of all, they're just looking for an excuse, right? right. They want to attack the ultra they want to attack jews because they want to attack jews but like it's only because they're identifiable as jews like i walk down the street and, and if you don't know who i am you just think you know who's that you know overweight irish guy um or something but and you wouldn't attack me even though like i'm a big israel supporter and it just shows you you know this idea that somehow there isn't anti-semitism being fostered out there over this israel stuff when people are going to say i'm going to attack someone six thousand miles away merely because they look like what I think a Jew is that is happening in this other country is, is really kind of astounding, you know? Well, at the risk of, um, uh, running afoul of my self-imposed six month compliment moratorium, uh, I got a good education in, uh, anti-Semitic history from this podcast last week. 
and was very helpful. Um, <clears throat> now, what you said about, I do know a couple of things about Jesus. Uh, and it is true that much of the teachings of the, er, many of the teachings of the early church that then went over into uh, the uh, the secular side of government uh, were anti-trade and certainly anti-lending. Jesus did say, if you, if you give somebody money, don't loan it to them, give it to them as a gift. If somebody needs money, just give it to them. Don't loan them money in hopes of it being repaid. He did say that. But on the rest of the stuff. My Uncle know. Morty never said that. <laughs> that was a different, it's a different experience, different Jewish guy. Um, but in thinking about Marx, I had never real. I knew that Marx was uh, anti-Semitic. I knew he was a bigot, uh, but I didn't know the deets and hearing all of the stuff about the blood and all of those things. And you're just, I, you know, the, the, the sad part is that it's always going to be true. I think this is true of Mormons in the United States today. Uh, I think it's true of Asians in a lot of places, which is minority groups that use unit cohesion to advance their standing in another society, right? So, and this is true of Lebanese in a lot of countries around the world. The overseas Chinese, for sure. For sure. But- why are Mormon, why is Utah growing so fast? Why are Mormons so successful compared to the rest of the United States? They stick together. They value mm -hmm. education. They value community. You know, they're modeling the kind of virtues that create healthy societies. They're, they model those things. And that, of course, will induce resentment uh, in other groups that feel that they're getting unfair advantages. When the riots, when the Rodney King riots started, where did they burn first? What were the first targets, right? Korean-American grocery stores and Korean-American market liquor stores and markets. Uh, that was resentment against an effective minority group. And I just think the sad truth is it's just always, it's always with us. And the one against Jews is thousands of years old. And it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. So um, we can get off of this in, in one second. Uh, but two things. One. I learned from Amy Chua, who I understand is in some controversy at Yale, and I don't care about it. Um, but she wrote this good book on tribalism a few years ago. And she says, and I have not seen anybody disprove it, and she insists it's in true, it, this is true, that most of the Vietnamese boat people that came here in the 1970s um, were, in fact, ethnically Chinese. and Many of them themselves did not even know it. And mm. uh, because the internal Chinese, ethnic Chinese community, which looks very similar because it's been there for so long, um, in lots of Asian countries is very co cohesive, very successful, middleman minority. In something like in the Philippines, 25% of yep. uh, the wealth is owned by this tiny fraction of the ethnic Chinese. Um, and they and the ethnic Chinese knew that when the North Vietnamese came to town, they were going to, they were going to go after them first. And she says that in her classes, she'll say this, she'll say, how many of you are descendants of Vietnamese refugees? And a bunch of hands go, at, at, you know, she was teaching at Stanford at the time or something. And, um, and she says, go home and ask your parents. I bet you, you'll find out that most of you are actually ethnically Chinese and kids come back and they say, yeah, my parents didn't tell us, which I just think is sort of fascinating. 
And the second thing I want to say, just to wrap up my bad media intake before we get to the real thing, uh, I then heard on Morning Joe, Stacey Abrams, A, plug her new novel. Oh, boy. Ew, I, turned, boy. I turned to my wife and said, can you imagine spending money you could spend on our Spaniels tennis balls on that book? Um, and, and it's like a, it's a romancy kind of novel by my understanding. I think it's <laughs> more of like a murder mystery whodunit with a law clerk who may have a love interest as well. I'm not, I'm not oh, sure. dear, but she then turned to telling Mika how important it is to push back against those who would deny the legitimacy of American elections and hmm. unironically. Hmm. And, hmm. uh, yeah. So anyway, with huh. that, uh, it was just a, it was a banner morning. So, and I'm sure, I'm sure that Mika Brzezinski at that moment said, now, hold on a second, hold on a second, ma'am. <clears throat> you tried to delegitimate the results of your gubernatorial election in Georgia. Didn't you start this avalanche in many ways? Shouldn't you take responsibility? She said that. And then they had a frank conversation. Um, I hit mute, uh, <laughs> pretty early in this conversation. So I, I, I can't, I can't attest. I did not. It did not seem like that had happened at any point in the, okay. in the rest of the just, interview. But if it just, did, kudos I'm sure, to me. I'm sure later. I'm sure they yeah. circled back to it later for accountability. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> the, the use of, you know, media criticism, my joke about media criticism is always, uh, it's like asbestos abatement. Uh, it is uh, hazardous. You need special equipment and you should leave it to the professionals. And also it's true that very often media criticism is the first refuge of the scoundrel, right? Uh, you're faced with a difficult question. You're an ideologue or a partisan. And it's like, hey, Donald Trump just punched a baby. What do you think about that? And it's like, oh, see here, the New York Times reporter already tweeted that he kicked the baby. So look, <laughs> if they're going to lie, then what's even the point? And that kind of dumb, dumb, dumb stuff. So I always try to stay back from media criticism. But since I left Fox and have left the world of, oh my gosh, what a thousand pounds of stuff are we going to pour into this starving maw each day, right? 24 hours is a long time to be on television in a row. Uh, and the, the, the need to feed. And so my media consumption has changed, right? So instead of like, waking up, opening up memorandum, looking at all of the aggregator sites, looking at all of those things and consuming in that way. I'm uh, more of an omnivore. I'm more of a grazer now. And interestingly, it's made me more aware of media bias. It's made me more, and certainly all the Israel stuff has been just, it, it's, been, it's been pretty bananas. But just generally speaking, Speaking of people who don't know not to wear their undergarments on the outside when they go to get a strip steak, I think that the new set of standards that journalists have embraced, this sort of post-journalism journalism, is uh, not only is it untenable, but it's it's, it is quickly producing toxic results. Okay, let's change gears because I mm -hmm. commandeered the beginning of this to complain about my morning's pre-coffee and post-coffee. You cannot come to your own podcast. That's, that is a, that's an impossibility. I, I made it too much about my wants and desires, <laughs> than what, the good of the Republic and the, and the product overall. So, um, you have had something you, you've finally, um, you've pulled off the bandaid. You've made the, mm -hmm. you, you, you're, you, you, 
on the road to Damascus, you finally check the box to really mangle some metaphors here. You are now a full-throated advocate of ranked choice voting. Well, I'm a quarter-throated advocate. Uh, so I, it sort of mirrors my journey on um, term limits. So 10 years ago, if we were having this discussion, I would have said, eh, you know, people ought to be able to vote for who they want. I understand the desire for term limits, but I have my concerns about empowering congressional staff and lobbyists excessively and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and now it's like, no, you got to like the, the, there's bad on both sides, but it outweighs. So now I'm pro term limits. I've followed a similar path on ranked choice voting, which is there are real problems with ranked choice voting in general elections, um, that, which Maine has done because my belief is if you want a healthier system in the United States, we have a system that was designed with the knowledge that there would be two parties. And that it that this is what would happen. Um, the understanding of both the Federalists and the Democratic as as they're hammering out the Constitution and what it means, they're thinking of it in these terms. Just as the Constitution was written with George Washington in mind, uh, the Constitution was also written with Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson in mind too. Right, that there were these two <clears throat> centers of power, political gravity. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I believe that two strong parties work best in our system. I think that's the best thing. And the problem with ranked choice voting in general elections is it incentivizes splinter single issue candidates. Uh, speaking of Israel, one of the problems that they have in Israel is there's so many parties to build right. your coalition. And it's like, well, the Kashrut butchers want this, but the, you know, the, the, the Hasids who don't want to serve in the military say this. And building these coalitions becomes very hard, and it would actually tend to undermine. But I think in the primaries, for goodness sake, we have a system that developed out of 40 and 50 years ago, the primary system to begin with, which obviously I wish I could. I take a backseat not even to you in my detest <laughs> of the American primary system, a 40-year 40 a 40-year failed experiment. Uh, I wish we could evaporate the whole thing and get the government out of the business of picking uh, party nominees. But we have a system that was arranged around, especially for Republicans, winner take all. So you had Donald Trump. I used this in my, in my column for the dispatch this week, which is in South Carolina, Donald Trump won all 50 delegates in 2016 with 35% of the vote. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense. That's not a, now the reason that the, the Republicans arranged their primaries this way was to advantage mainstream candidates. They wanted open primaries uh, and winner-take-all primaries because they knew that whether it was Pat Buchanan or Pat Robertson or whatever, uh, Mike Huckabee, whatever Fringo that was going to be chasing the consensus establishment pick wouldn't be able to catch up, right? And we, we, saw, it, we saw it play out in 88, 92, 96 in each election since Reagan, really, you've seen the phenomenon where a front runner gets out, has a has high name identification, lots of money, and then the people who start to gain traction can't catch up in time. Now that there are essentially no parties acting as barriers to entry uh, because of McCain-Feingold, because of a lot of other things, 
um, because of those weak parties, there's no barrier to entry for these folks to get into the race. So the Republicans are going to have two or three dozen, maybe, candidates. It will be a, an absurd number of people who will be credentialed in some way, right? You can, half of the Senate, they're going to have to have Senate committee meetings in Iowa uh, just to accommodate the number of U.S. senators who will be running for president. Um, the best way for, so Republicans should not be thinking about, oh, I want a candidate who's exactly like this and exactly like that. That's magical thinking that leads to wasted money and deeper divisions. Republicans need to fix their primary system and Republican state leaders should move towards rank choice voting for their primaries. That's what they need to do. Yeah, I, I got to say, I mean, look, I, I'm much more sympathetic to rank choice voting than I used to be. One of the things that makes me a conservative is I'm always suspicious about political innovation of any kind. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but it seems to me that if you're going to do rank choice voting, I mean, if you're going to do early voting, which mm -hmm. doesn't seem like we're ever going to get past that, right. which I, I still think it's a bad idea. Um, again, within, especially in a primary, especially in a stinking primary where it evolves week to week to week to week. Right. I mean, so we saw, I mean, I wrote, I remember writing a column about it. It wasn't, maybe it was super Tuesday or it was the one after, but like there were a bunch of States where literally millions of people voted. Right. For people who are no longer in the race because right. they've sent in their ballots too early. And Buttigieg, you know, the, 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 the million wasted Buttigieg ballots, though Bloomberg and Guam together forever. Right. That's right. That's right. So it seems to me if you're going to do law, you know, I'm against early voting as in general, but that doesn't mean you can't have prudential allowances for this or that. But generally I, I believe in deadlines. I think deadlines are important, but if you're going to do long-term early voting and absentee voting, um, rank choice voting makes a lot of sense because if like your first choice drops out, then you still get to cast a vote for your second choice. And, That's right. um, and an enormous number, I mean, this happens every four years in the primaries where, um, the, your, you, people would have voted for somebody else if they knew that that person it was going to come down to a two person race that way, but they, right. they threw away their vote. And, and, and pollsters, we tried, uh, we tried to find out, um, in these primaries. Okay. If the race was just between, so you ask in exit polls or the equivalent, okay, if the race was between this guy and this guy, how would you vote? And you can go back through 2016 and 2020, and you can see how different the outcomes would have been if people had to choose a, se a second candidate. Uh, and the Democrats did use ranked choice. But one of the things that the Democrats did to try to get a hold of their Oh, their caucuses. Ugh. So the, <laughs> to try to get a hold of their caucuses was to say, look, you can have caucuses, but you got to do rank choice or something in it to minimize the, the possibility of a small group of Bernie bros shouting everybody else down and walking away with a, with a misrepresentative sample. Uh, so they did rank choice. And it was interesting to watch. I think it was Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming, Nevada, and Kansas did it. And to watch what happened to the other people's votes, and it was not surprising that you saw a lot of the normo Republicans or normo Democrats go to Biden, that Biden was the second choice for the Buttigieg voters in the Klobuchar. Da, 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 da. But what was really fascinating was how many Elizabeth Warren voters had Biden ahead of Bernie 
on their tally sheet. Oh, that's interesting. And that would that doesn't make sense, right? If if one of the big mistakes that people make in trying to analyze politics is the same mistake I'm I'm obsessed with um uh behavioral economics. I'm I'm obsessed with social psychology and those things. I uh adore the work of Richard Thaler and the and the uh Nobel Prize winning gang at the University of Chicago because people don't in politics make rational decisions. No, no, no. I'm sorry. People in politics make rational decisions, but don't prioritize the things very often that we think they should. Right. So it's like, well, uh, Joe Biden's not for Medicare for all. Bernie is for Medicare for all. Bernie lines up on these 14, blah, 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 blah. It's also possible though, that the same people said, I don't like Bernie Sanders. I don't like him and I don't want to vote for him. And this is the phenomenon where you could, the Kamala Harris phenomenon, the Marco Rubio phenomenon, it's on paper. It's right. Or, I mean, Ted Cruz basically regrew himself in a, in a painful uh, laboratory experience to run for 2016. I have all the right issues. I'm doing all the right things. I'm going all the right places. And the dogs don't like the dog food, right? It's just right. like, no, I don't like this guy. And that was true for Harris. And that was true for Rubio, where you have these candidates who look great on paper, but it just, it doesn't add up. And you've heard me say it many times before. I'll say it again. Americans will vote for very liberal people. They'll vote for very conservative people, but they're always voting for a person. Right. And persuadable voters uh, care the least about ideology uh, compared to those other folks. So it's no wonder that personality traits and characterological traits mean a lot more to those voters. Yeah. I mean, the, um, I remember when there were a bunch of postmortems towards the end of the Democratic primaries. It was weird how it dawned on almost everybody at the same time that a lot of the early punditry for 2016 Democratic race was assumed that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were competing essentially for the same voters and in the yep. same lane. And yep. it turned out that like Bernie's people are much more, you know, beer and you know uh beer track like, yeah beer yeah, yeah. track socialists versus wine track socialists i mean to put it you know simply don't say it, beer hall socialists because that I, has that has some negative problem. connotations i know that's, that's, right. that's where i wanted to go um <laughs> um i just in the republican party right now has to uh, to quote churchill the only way out is through and there's no way for the Republican Party to skip over these heinous divisions that exist within it, right? Democrats have done an impressive job. I've been impressed by the degree to which Democrats, with Trump absent, have stuck together, right? The Israel right. stuff has shown real, you can see where the, the plates are moving, right? You can see the tectonics of the Democratic Party are reasserting themselves. But if you would have told me that Joe Biden would be still holding 54% uh, job approval rating and that Democrats would not be in open revolt on a bunch of stuff against him as we head into Memorial Day, I would have said, gosh, that's, that's pretty good. And uh, so they've done an admirable job of that. The Republicans don't have what Democrats had before, though. They don't have a unifying villain. Right. What made it easy, the the uh, the the covid Trump overlay for Democrats 
really was a unifying experience. It was a, a cohering experience for Democrats. Republicans, Joe Biden, whatever you think of Joe Biden, is hard, much harder to hate than Barack Obama. He's yeah. much harder to hate than Barack Obama. He's a nicer person. Uh, and though his policies are very liberal, he speaks the Charles Krauthammer's gift was to, as Brett Stevens put it, to make his opponent's argument for them even better than they could. Right. And still defeat it. Right. right. To crowd the verb of crowd hammering is, oh, so what you're saying, no straw men, make your case back at you, and then still defeat it. Biden has a better grasp and understanding of what conservatives think from his time in the Senate. He has a better grasp of how conservatives think uh, and and doesn't try to delegitimize their thinking in ways that Obama did. Uh, he's also a, a old white dude so right. that you don't hit culture war tripwires in the same way. And he's a lifelong Roman Catholic. So there's he's got a lot of advantages that Obama didn't uh, in in avoiding being such an effulgent target for GOP culture warriors and all that stuff. And it's the Republicans are going to have to settle their own hash before they can move on to, you know, bash Biden. So, you know, it just, it's funny listening to you talk because um, a reporter recently asked me if I had any explanations for why there have been no, like, big anti-Biden books. And normally that's like, a, you know, there's a Democratic president, the right-wing publishing churns out yeah, yeah, yeah. these books, whatever. And, um, and you recounted most of the reasons why I said that um, they weren't, uh, that he's just, he's, 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 He's just a, a difficult target. He's a fuzzy target for that kind of stuff. The only one that I, that I can recall that you left out is that also he has almost nothing of an exo intellectually exotic past, right? right? With Bill Clinton, there was the Moscow thing, and there was the letter about Vietnam, and there was the, the all the smoke weird and, smoke and reefer with Allen Ginsberg, and yeah, yeah, and there was the the the. The, and all all the rumors about you know the bimbo eruptions, which you know for you kids out there, it was a phrase the Clinton campaign used. Um, yes. Hey, um, Jonah, if you drag a twenty dollar bill through a trailer park, you'd be surprised what you find. Um, and, you know, and in retrospect, anyway, we don't need to get into that. <laughs> uh, but um, and then Hillary, she worked. You know, she did work for the for the Watergate, and she did the the, the Black Panthers trial. Hillary she, Clinton was on the cover of Time magazine when she was still in law school. Yeah, and she went worked for the communist law firm on the West Coast, and Sidney Blumenthal, and yada 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 yada. And then, and then of course Barack Obama. He wrote a memoir and, and this, all that kind of stuff. There was these exotic and Saul Alinsky, which connects both of them. Right. There were all of and these there's like sex. There's uh, race, there's culture, there's fascination, there's power, there's all that stuff. And the Bidens are delightfully boring. Yeah, oh, and, they're delightfully boring. And by the things that are interesting about his past, I mean, the, the, the exaggerations and the plagiarism are, are, have been so masticated and, you know, to the point where they're just, there's nothing, there's, there's no juice left in them. And he was also elected to the Senate when he was like 27 years old. So it's not like he had time to go off and like, you know, uh, do s clandestine missions for, you know, the Chicoms in, in Moscow or whatever. I mean, there's, like, and, there's and, just nothing there, you know? And he was a square in high school and college, right? When you see pictures of a young Joe Biden, 
blue blazer, striped tie, you would you would now say, oh, that's a Republican kid right there. Joe Biden was a clean cut. Uh, he didn't serve in the military. In 2020, the American voters had a choice between two people who had taken dubious paths to avoid service in Vietnam. Trump's more dubious than Biden's, but Biden was a high school athlete who cited, I believe, asthma. Is that right? Uh, for a draft deferment. Uh, I can't judge because I'm sure I would, if I had a kid, I would do whatever I could uh, to try to keep them safe, I think. Um, so I can't judge a, a parent for what they did. But Biden's squareness and boringness. And by the way, the other thing is, I get a strong sense that his homies, right? Ron Kaufman, uh, Klain, Ron Klain, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly Jill Biden, are setting a vibe for the administration that Jen Psaki is, is delivering effectively on a day in and day out basis, which is it's even less drama than Obama, right? Right. It's, it's a, it, it, it's uh hip to be square and they're really leaning into that. And it's great for the country to have a boring president for a minute, right? I, I, my fondest wish for the country I love the, the, for our America is that we would to, to wax theological briefly again, there are many Christians who only take the minus side of the ledger, right? They like the rules, they like the order, they like the stuff, but they don't experience the save by grace joy side on the other side of the book, right? So it's like, okay, yeah, there are these restrictions and you need to you know, obey the commandments and do all that stuff. But on the other side, there's joy and freedom that comes over here. We're doing the same thing with a Republican system of government, which is we're taking the downsides that come with a Republican system of government, which is divided power uh, slows things down and there, there's all of that stuff. But we're not taking the upside, which is being able to delegate and forget about politics for two years at a time. And we, we shouldn't be thinking about this is I have devoted my professional life to this. I love it. I am a freak and a nerd and I embrace it. But I'm not a I'm not an all the time food. I'm a sometimes food. This is like, you know, uh, political forecasting and politics and all that stuff. We if Biden can make it. What did um, uh, the Starbucks founder? What was his name? Who uh, thought about thinking about running for president? Oh, Schultz, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Howard Schultz. Uh, and he said, you know, my hope would be if I was elected president, that people could forget about me for weeks at a time. And I thought, bro. <laughs> I'll, I'll have a double shot of that. Yeah, no, it's like, um, it's one of the reasons why, uh, Kevin Williamson and I love Switzerland so much is that they do polls and they find that there's a significant portion of the Swiss people who can't name their president. And in fairness, it's a little misleading because the president doesn't have the same right, right, right. stature here. I mean, there that it is here, but. Still, I, I I just like the idea. You know, this is um, no wonder that this is the the Williamsonian uh, dream state: uh, a assault rifle in every closet uh, and a uh, benign neglect of uh, political power. And also, like uh, I know I've talked about this on here before. My favorite thing about Swiss uh, law may be the um, their immigration rule. Mm -hmm. Which oh yeah 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 final approval comes from the local community, so like like it's not some bureaucrat at INS or ICE or whatever um, who decides. And look, I'm not saying that we should have that in America. It, the fist fights would be bad, but um, but in Switzerland, which has you know this tiny population, 
They're basically like, if you're a jerk in your little canton and your little town, your neighbors can say, nah, they should, they can stay living here. You know, they're legal residents, but we don't want to make them Swiss. And I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome. And I think we should, I think, you know, one of the things I speak to, to have the military, I didn't know we'd have two mentions of the draft uh, today, but local draft boards worked, right? Mm-hmm. They understood who was in the community. They understood like, okay, this guy is faking. This guy's probably not faking. This guy's got a rich dad. This guy's got a port. Like having community-based assessment. And one of, one of the things that um, uh, I was, uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to balderize uh, the, the cursing that I was about to do. One of the things that vexes me uh, <laughs> is the nationalists in both parties who are trying to suck power up to the federal level in all things. Right. And I read there was a piece talking about um, Marco Rubio's, what do they call it? Um, Common good capitalism? Common good conservatism. Because, you know, being conservative is not good for every, it's not good. So we've got to have a version. It's like compassionate conservatism. Normally conservative, very, uh, uh, very cruel, but we're going to have a version that's not cruel. So, and it was a piece in the Wall Street Journal on Friday, uh, and this professor from Texas Tech uh, wrote a piece about, he said, I am a conservative, but I think we need to take seriously uh, the criticisms of markets and the criticisms of uh, this and, and look closely at this question. And I thought as I read it, and I think is when Democrats talk about federalizing elections, uh, and I think all these things, I say, what is it about the federal government that makes you think it's good at doing anything? What is it about the federal government? Tell me what it is, right? We can point to the Second World War. We can point to the Eisenhower interstate system. There are certainly things that the federal government has done successfully. But what recently would you say that say, boy, that federal government, you give them the power, they'll use it well, effectively, and efficiently. And we keep stumbling forward, somehow pretending like, well, once we just once we're in charge or once we have enough power, then the federal government will work well. And I think you're a bunch of dummies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, I mean, the the Friedrich Hayek's knowledge problem point mm-hmm. had nothing to do with progressive social economic planners, in the, save in the extent that progressives were more likely to be into economic planning. It had to do with planning. You know, it's just like you can be the most right with God, post-liberal Catholic integralist. It still doesn't mean you have a great grasp on why bread prices in Nevada are going the wrong way. And um, uh, and there's this just fascinating tendency among these people to say, we don't understand, but, you know, we're properly motivated. Right, we want exactly. to help people. Right. Like, I have no doubt that most progressives actually do want to help people. I just think they're wrong about what they think will help. And I think they're wrong about how good they're going to be at, at helping. But, you know, most people don't want to be the villain. You know, no, right. no one says, oh, I'll sign up. I'll wear the black hat. Right, That's right, right. That's how it works. Now, there, there are people who delight in the negative attention of being a troll and stuff like that. Sure, sure, sure. But I believe that. The nationalists, by and large, on the right and the progressives on the left uh, are well-intentioned and want good things for the country. I, I absolutely believe that that's true. But in both cases, 
they believe that um, America can be great only if the following steps are taken to do these things. Here's what I know. And this has been the great lesson to me of the past several years, which is I am a middle-aged white Protestant man. Uh, and it is true that I do not have all the answers. And it is right to point out that uh, the, the patriarchy, the white patriarchy, uh, did not have all the answers. That's true. You know who does have all the answers? No one. Right. No one has all the answers. We, If people were good at predicting the future and knowing what worked, we would not be where we are now, right? This is a trial and error, the ad hocracy of Burke. This is the, we're making it up as we go, being an adult is understanding that your parents were terrified and didn't know what they were doing either. And we're faking it, you fake it till you make it. And that's good and fine and healthy. And it's the human condition. Um, I care increasingly little, and I don't know if it was you the other day who was talking about it, but I heard somebody talking about it. Um, and it's a point that I make all the time. I have my views about the proper role of firearms in the United States. Mm -hmm. I do. Um, but I say to people who want to change the way that Americans are interact with guns, pass a constitutional amendment. Yeah, that, I was talking I, about that. Yeah. I don't care. I don't care. Yeah, it was you. I, I don't care what your position is. I care that you work through the system. Why do I dislike uh, the imperial presidency and the executive orders? Why do I uh, dislike uh, using budget reconciliation uh, to uh, cynical calculated ends? I don't like those things because I want people to work through the system. If you're working through the system, go have a battle of ideas. You know, we have to save Congress because that's what that's supposed to do. That's what that system's supposed to produce. And increasingly, we're looking for hacks and shortcuts to get around the system. I'm just here to say, I don't care what you want. I just want you to air it and do it in the right place. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, I would be, I would fight pretty hard against a serious ban on firearms in this country. Yeah. In part because I think sort of like prohibition, even if you could persuade me that it was a good idea, it, it, it won't work. And the prohibition speaking, part, yeah, just, it would be bad law and it will create adverse effects that would be really bad. But I have no problem with people trying to figure out how to do that through the real process, right? You know, it, because that requires so much buy-in and so much persuasion at every level, yep, horizontally and vertically, that it's just not scary to me. It's what democracy is kind of supposed to be about. We have we have to rediscover constitutional amendments. Um Evan Bayes' dad Birch Bay got like four or five amendments to the constitution pushed through. Um, we have a lot of amendments to the Constitution that are would be very popular. I mentioned term limits before. Uh, that is one that would you could, really could pass if Congress would let it happen. That it really could pass. There are a number of things. There are a number of issues, and the Second Amendment is one of them. It would be good for the United States to have a real discussion about what the Second Amendment says and whether it ought to be replaced. Should it be rewritten in some way to clarify it in one direction or the other? Should it should it say? You must be in a militia if you want to have a firearm, or should it take references to the militia? That's a good conversation to us to for us to have. Other than, and this is really sort of a definitional problem for our time. The other people are so bad, and their aims are so awful that it is necessary for us to cheat 
in order to overcome their wickedness. We must take the shortcuts. We must do the things because the other people hate America and want to destroy America from within. And therefore, I am entitled to this heinous behavior. If As long as we continue to watch partisans set the lower boundary of their conduct based on what not just their opponents do, but what they say their opponents do, right? Right. And as I said to you before, I've said to you before, what the dupes in Arizona are doing with their bamboo fibers and now the folks in Georgia want to do, those dupes want to do, if you believe what they believe, then they are doing a right thing, right? They're, if you believe that Democrats, a cabal of Democrats conspired with hostile foreign powers to steal a U.S. election and impose a puppet president uh, owned by China on the United States. If you thought that was true, then go for it, baby. Like, get after it. Um, that's why the cruel, uncharitable, uh, um, uh, mendacious, uh, all of that, that that is in media very often and the, assuming the worst about the other side, delivers such terrible results. Um, all right, so that's, that's a good segue. I do want to say that if I were Evan Bai, mm -hmm. I'd be very tempted to name my daughter Felicia, and that way, whenever... <laughs> <Bye>. comma. <laughs> yeah, whenever they read my, my daughter's name at, like, events and stuff, Bai, Felicia. Felicia. Um, it'd be awesome. Anyway, um, uh, so let's go to this through... Um, I, my LA Times columns up today. I'll be up at the dispatch uh, manana. Um, harken back with me to the, the 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 exciting days of midsummer 2020, uh, when a uh, CNN reporter was standing in front of a burning building and a bunch of burning cars, and the Chiron right underneath. Uh, Fiery, but mostly peaceful. Mostly protests. peaceful. Yeah. Right. Mostly peaceful. And all of our people, inc me included, dunked from great height with great relish on this. Um, and uh, they actually did a report, found out that like 93% of BLM protests were in fact peaceful. And most many of the of people who went to Ford's theater that night were not assassinated. That's right. And, well, and really statistically an insignificant number of them were killed. And um in fact most of the soldiers in American soldiers in World War II did not storm Normandy Beach. This is true. Um or even to be more fair <laughs> most of them you know the 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 ratio of of combat troops versus support troops in the US military is always like 7 or 9 to 1 or 11 to 1 or something like and that. And even in combat units uh the there've been studies done very few of the weapons ever get discharged in right in so and 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 there is a there's a there's a pareto distribution to like all of this like most of the mobs in the french revolution did not in fact right. strangle the last priest with their own entrails but uh <laughs> they they provided a permission structure <laughs> to yes. other people who are willing to do that right yes, so right, it was right, a really right, dumb right. kind of argument yeah, yeah and yeah. and our people had great fun with it including me and blah 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 um Fast forward to 2021, we now have, I singled out Ron Johnson, but he's emblematic of Dude, a much buddy. larger group, who insists that the protesters on January 6th were mostly peaceful. He says those words. Oh, he, boy. He mocked the BLM people for saying their things were mostly peaceful. 
But according to his own math, only 800 people stormed the Capitol out of 20,000 who were there. If you assume a couple hundred didn't actually make it into the building because they were too busy pepper spraying and bludgeoning cops on the steps, that gets you to 93% uh, uh, mostly peaceful as well. And what is fascinating to me... Did he really say that? He... Yes. Which part? That it was mostly that they he, he literally says the words "mostly peaceful." He oh, says right. his pre- his preferred his preferred phrasing is "by and large peaceful." Um, Somewhere, uh, Scott Walker and Paul Ryan are like looking into their looking into their uh, Miller lights and thinking, "He seems so normal when we picked him. He seemed good. He was normal, you know." He's, and well, once he shaved the mustache, Jonah. Once yeah. he shaved the mustache, it all fell apart. That and I've I told I've told it to him before. He's got to grow the stash back because, like um, Samson, that's where his that's where his reasonableness lies is on his upper lip. Yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, because maybe he should get a neck beard. Ooh, like, um, yeah, 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 like a bork. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I, um, both sides. So here's my general criticism. I, 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 I love my former colleagues at, at national review. I love Andy McCarthy. Um, uh, I agree generally speaking with, and I shouldn't say I agree. I find their arguments against a January 6th commission serious, thoughtful, intellectually honest and consistent, sincere, um, with, and with great merit. And utterly beside the point, yeah. yeah. Um, because yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell made some very good points in his floor speech about all this. There are legitimate good arguments against the January sixth commission. My problem is, is that there, even though, and I'm not saying any, any of my friends at National Review are doing it in a pretextual way. I think they believe what they're what they're saying, and and I find it persuasive. But the alternative, but 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 the problem is, is that that's not at all what any of these Republicans actually have in right. mind. Right. When they're voting against doing a commission, it's to keep maintain. You know, Ron Johnson says that they just want the January 6th commission. He told us to Tucker, of course, um, they just want the January 6th commission to maintain this false narrative about President Trump. And the thing is, they've got their false narrative about Donald Trump and they want they don't want a January commission. January 6th commission for precisely the same reason. They want right. their false narrative about Donald Trump, the one that Donald Trump is still peddling. And you saw this. And actually, I meant to ask you about this earlier. This Ipsos poll, Reuters Ipsos poll, that says 54% of Americans think Trump is the, uh, Republicans think Trump is the actual president. And something like 60 think it was stolen or, you know, you it's, know, it's, agree you know strongly that agree. You know that I'm a poll snob. Uh, I know. So what do you think of that poll? And that, generally that is not a great, stuff? that is not a great poll. Uh, it's uh-huh. an all, it's an all, uh, I, I have methodological criticisms of that poll, but also I have developed a tick about how these questions are phrased and the phrasing is really important. So yeah. there is the, uh, the dupes, there are the dupes, there are the people who have been genuinely hoodwinked, right. And who believe the the big lie as it is called uh and and believe that it is true then there's the people who through either cynicism or a admirable desire to unite their party are like yeah the election was stolen it was stolen by the crooked press and the blah 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 and you're like oh i see what you did there 
Right. You're like, you, so you can say to the dupes, oh, yeah, it was definitely stolen. And then out of the other side of your mouth, you can say, by the same factors that always work against Republican candidates. The, the big problem that uh, we have here for Republicans is that there are no good choices. This is an Afghanistan situation. There's no, aha. And of course, motivated thinking will always cause politicians to believe that there is a no pain way through a problem. And right. they're going to be much more likely to listen to somebody who says so. The truth for Republicans is, if they go along with this uh, inquest and into this commission, it is true 100% that Nancy Pelosi will use it against them to try to hold on to the House, uh, will use its findings and its proceedings to try to hold on to the House, and that Senate Democrats will do the same. This is certain. It is true. On the other hand, if Republicans block it, she will use that against them to try to hold on to the House and hold right. on to the Senate. No matter what you do, you're going to face a consequence. Now, Republicans believe, and this certainly is in, in keeping with McConnell, which is uh, if you're going to lay down, lay down now, right? Don't, don't wait, right? The worst thing that you can do is vacillate over whether or not you're going to do I think that this is certainly true of the Merrick Garland experience, but it taught us about McConnell's approaches to things and how it is. Come out early, say what you're going to do that's unpopular, and then stick it. And then just keep sticking it, and pretty soon people will tire of saying it. That will not be true about Republicans who vote to uh, block and probe into the January 6th attack on the Capitol. This is an event that will get larger in the rearview mirror rather than diminish for a while, right? As we think about it, whatever uh, a mustacheless Ron Johnson has to say about it, the truth is this is a watershed moment in American political history. This is a, th you know, and it's not just January 6th. The Trump's impeachable offense was trying to steal the election. Right. It, whatever you think about his shameful activities on the 6th of January, the reason that Congress should have removed him from office was that he tried to steal the election. And that truth will get more clear as we recede, right? And the context of, well, you know, Black Lives Matter people, because what a, lo a lot of those people had was riot envy, right? They resented the fact that they thought that uh, Black people got to riot without consequences and were encouraged, they felt, to do so. Uh, and certainly when you listen to somebody like, um, oh, it wasn't Sheila Jackson Lee, it was uh, Maxine Waters, who basically said, We'll get a good verdict out of the Derek Chauvin case because of the threat of violence was basically right. what she was what she was saying. So if that's the view that you have, there was this envy that these uh, mostly white uh, folks felt that it was like, well, why can't we do our thing? All that context will evaporate over the next five years. Over time, they'll be like, yeah, 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 I know it was pandemic and stuff, but we'll still remember what Trump did, and we'll still remember the sixth of January. So Republicans would be better off to have it out, get it done, get it over with, vote for the daggone commission, let it run its course and have be part of getting right. They don't want Kevin McCarthy to testify. They don't want a lot of stuff that's going to come out of it. But there isn't like another option that's painless. There's pain and consequence in either direction. That's what happens when you do bad stuff. Yeah. And so like, I, I have, I have real serious 
disagreements with, and I, I've heard this now from a bunch of people I like and respect that we pretty much know everything we need to know about that day. And I, I don't know that that's true, particularly, you know, when Donald Trump is going around saying he wasn't watching TV when it all happened, right. Which contradicts everything that we, you know, that the people that we apparently knew. So, you know, let's, let's find out. Um, but moreover, it's not so much just, I mean, obviously Trump's behavior matters more than a lot of other people's, but there were these, all those guys, you know, the sort of Bannon world people who bust in these people who were encouraging all sorts of things on social media and the sort of swampier parts of things. Um, they had to, I mean, like, I, I completely understand why like normal Mr. Republican, Mrs. Republican person doesn't know what the chatter on 4chan was or 8chan or whatever Chan is, you know, or Jackie Chan, I don't care, whatever, you know, but they weren't, they weren't, I don't, I don't hold them accountable to the people who were like saying, okay, you bring the zip ties, I'll bring the banded radio that we can all, that can't be tapped and right. you bring the bear spray. I, I don't, I don't think all the people who showed up at the Stop the Steel rally knew anything about that stuff. But the idea that the sort of Bannon world, Charlie Kirk world, people that guy ali i can't remember what his real name is um uh that they didn't know mm -hmm. that this kind of chatter was going on in roger stone world and well, they i didn't I, I absolutely believe i absolutely believe that people, uh more mainstream than them delighted when things started to get crazy at the capitol right before people are smashing in windows and before the building is breached there, I'm sure, was lots of delight to see the swarms of people climbing the scaffolding for the inaugural and making a, a, a terrible scene. And I'm sure a lot of people like the idea of an angry mob. You know, Trump just wanted an angry, all Trump wanted was an angry mob to go and harass the Congress to prevent uh, his vice president from executing his constitutional duties. That's all he wanted. And people <laughs> make it like it's a bad thing. Uh, so what Trump wanted was vile, right? His, his desire for what his intended outcome, go down there, harass these people, you know, be ugly, be belligerent, be those things. That is the pugnacious attitude that is the Trump brand, right? The Trump brand is, you're, you know, you're yelling at me, I'm, I'm right back in your face. You will feel the spray of my saliva as I, as I counter you. Uh, and that's what he wanted. And that would be bad enough. One of the best reasons to have the commission though, is to find out how it was that we didn't, that, that this was allowed to happen. And when I say allowed, it wasn't that I I'm, I'm not putting credence in the idea, too much credence in the idea that Capitol police were in on it. But what I mean is how did these lapses occur? How right. did it come to pass? And I, I know why because racial profiling is, is a thing. And uh, groups of white Republicans, generally speaking, when gathered, do not smash in windows at government buildings with chairs uh, and, and urinate in the speaker's office. That's generally not what you expect from, and we remember the Tea Party rallies of 2010, where right. it was so orderly and they were so nice and it was so good and everybody was so pleased. So it's not wrong that police expected that, but obviously, Huge mistakes were made. And some of this relates to Nancy Pelosi and her administration of the Congress and all those things. So why not just go do it? 
Why not get it over with as opposed to recording a vote for yourself for perpetuity that said, no, see, you have to understand they were going to use it against us in midterms. So it was just we had to we had to just not vote that way. Um, yeah, I mean, in the use it in, against us in midterms thing, like. I know I didn't rant about this a lot. It's the perfect illustration of the difference between an explanation and an yes. excuse. Like it's a perfectly <laughs> understandable and plausible explanation, but it's not an excuse, but right. Exactly. I know why <laughs> the car thief wants to steal cars. I understand why he wants to so that he can sell them and get money, but that doesn't mean it's okay. Right. Right. And like, uh, you know, when my daughter was little and she would, you know, draw on the wall wall with a marker, you know, I was like, why did you do that? Well, I really wanted to, to to do some drawing, and I didn't have any paper, you know, whatever. Right, perfectly valid explanation, you know, not an excuse. True, All right, true so, but irrelevant. True but irrelevant. So you uh, you talk about how you think that the the memory of January sixth is only going to grow over the next five years, and as people look at these things in retrospect and whatnot and so forth, I would like to believe in some ways that that's true. But it also gives me a opportunity to segue somewhat <laughs> haphazardly to something Veering. else, uh, which is you have you're putting the finishing touches on a limited run podcast series for the Dispatch mm-hmm. called The Hangover. Right? Mm-hmm. What's, what's the full title? Hangover. The Hangover with Chris Dyerwald. The Hangover with Chris Dyerwald. Yeah. Um, it's funny how I just forgot your name. I know. Um, it's understandable. But, so. You, the idea for this was since the GOP wasn't interested in doing a postmortem and a lot of conservative media wasn't interested in doing a postmortem, which normally happens after a loss, uh, that you do one, right? So, uh, why don't you, uh, tell us about it. You're going to be taking over a slice of my bandwidth for a little while, and you're Mm -hmm, going to be mm -hmm. running at least for the first next, the first two and two or three ones, um, on the Thursday installment of the remnant for everybody. And And I've. I first want to I first want to thank you for doing that uh, and giving me you and you and Steve for giving me a platform to do this because I think it I find it interesting for all the reasons uh, that I mentioned earlier. You know, I am neither a Republican nor a Democrat, uh, but I sure have an interest in seeing those parties be healthy. Right. And so we're basically we have like a quarter of what we should have. We should have two healthy parties. We have half of one, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good that's not good. Um, so every American has a vested interest in these parties being healthy. Uh, the Republicans took the shortest trip from absolute majority to absolute minority in Washington in 70, in almost 70 years. Right. And it's amazing, right? Uh, no, no, no. That was, uh, it was, uh, Truman, uh, it was the, the Truman wipeout. Uh, it was, I, I think it's Eisenhower and. Mm-hmm. What for I, the Truman lost the Congress and then he when Eisenhower won, the Democrats were all the way out for a period of time. I think that's what I found. But anyway, it's been a minute. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, right. It's uh, it's been before color television. Uh, and the the reality is this is a worrisome sign for the country because this is the acceleration of the parliamentarization of our republic of turning us into this turning the president into a premiership 
where if your party, you can only govern when your party takes control of both houses of Congress and the presidency, you ram through a bunch of stuff that everybody else hates, and then you get voted out the next time the other people come in. So this is telling that in just four years, the Republicans took it all, right? They took everything and then lost everything. And that's a, that's a frighteningly short period of time uh, in, for stable, predictable government. Uh, anyway, I hate when the podcasts that I love are like offered to you by us. Also, this podcast you hate. And I, I hate them <laughs> when they do that. They, I, I'm like, oh, Malcolm Gladwell's back. And then it's like, actually, no. It's a story about werewolves and the people and foodies who track them. And you're like, oh, I hate that. Why would you do that? Um, and so I, I, I apologize to your loyal legion of listeners who will see uh, me pop up in your feed. Uh, I hope that they will like it. I hope they will forgive the uh, interruption. But this, at, at the risk of being the worst person in the world, I do think it's important for us to have the conversation. And Republicans are not going to do it. They don't want to do it. And I do think it's important for us to have the conversation. So we've got, you know, Eric Cantor, Steve Kornacki, a whole swell gang of of experts, people who were both part of the process, like Parker Poling, uh, who uh, ran the NRCC uh, during 20. She's one of the bright spots. Uh, Republicans gained seats. At, Her last so, name is Poling. And she's in politics. Right. Is this perfect? And wow. she was a person who accidentally got into politics. And it's like it was meant to be it was meant i was going to make a stripper joke but i'm not going to go there because this is good enough as it is oh oh, boy oh boy Um, but we have a we have a great group of guests uh that are left right center and we talk the whole goal is to talk about what happened to the constituency groups inside the republican party with uh sort of chamber of commerce mainstream republicans with evangelicals with and, and to break down these groups break down the demography and talk about it and if you're a huge nerd You'll you'll love it. I have no doubt that it'll be great. We wouldn't have let you do it if we didn't think it was going to be great. Thank you, sir. And um, and for those, I mean, for those poor benighted souls out there who who are lamenting that at least for a couple of weeks their Goldberg intake will drop by a third, um, don't worry about it. Uh, I'll still do the Friday ruminant thing. And we will still do the Tuesday podcasts and, um, uh, and we're going to put a bunch of, hopefully put a bunch of stuff in the can. Cause I'm going to be traveling a bit. And I'm, uh, I'm no. really interested in seeing what you're going to do with these deep dives. What do you, what you have another name for them? What, what do you we're, call we're them? We're still working on it. I, I, I don't know. I mean, like I, I, I can't keep calling them supplemental cause I, I don't even like that term for the revolutions podcast. And I, I certainly don't want to s- steal it for my own, but it's like, uh, what's the matter you, right? It's, this is, you're going to give instruction. And I think, and, uh, the producers will, will immediately revile me for what I'm about to say, but you could see how with the, like, you could have great textured with sound, with clips to play. Like, let me, and, uh, as I said earlier, your you gave me an education on anti-Semitism that was like, I, you know, I did not know that Luther, like I knew Luther was uh, an anti, uh, a rabid anti-Semite, but I didn't know it was like, burn their synagogues, uh, drag them from your city, like, and, and instructions for, for a pre-Holocaust. Uh, 
So it was great and useful. And I hope you, I hope those become a factor because you're a good teacher. Well, thank you very much. I, um, I, that's sort of where I want to go. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not doing anything like on the new deal yet, because mm-hmm. that actually does lend itself to sound. And, um, and this has been an idea from the beginning is we've wanted to do, I've wanted to do sort of like intellectual historical audio documentary things on various mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is just a sort of a place to start. Um, but, uh, yeah, when you run, when you encounter the phrase burn their synagogues, yeah, it, it, it clears the battle space of a lot of, well, what do you mean he had a problem with the Jews? Yeah, like he said <laughs> things, but like, you know, you have to, it has to be contextualized. When you're like, burn their synagogues and drive them from your cities. You're like, okay, yeah, got so, it. Thanks, Torquemada. In, if you go to Lisbon, uh, so if you go tour the city, they have in the center of the city, uh, it's like, um, uh, oh, what are they, in London, why am I blanking on this, uh, where they have, I believe it's Nelson in the center, but it's, uh, is that Piccadilly circus? Not important, but anyway, go on. But in Portugal, they have one of those. And on all of the tall pillars, the, you have, Oh, there is Vasco da Gama. There's Prince Henry, the navigator, the great heroes of Portugal's past. And in the middle, get the thing. And I say, who's that? And the guy goes, ah, that's so-and-so. He drove all the Jews out of Portugal. I'm like, (laughs) Oh, okay. Got it. I see. Yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> no good. No good knishes here. I, I take it that <laughs> I should say just just for clarity, some of the nicest people I've ever met are Lutherans. I'm not saying that. There's, oh no 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, as you have as you and I have discussed many times before, uh, and you've talked about this with policing and other stuff. Martin Luther being an anti semite does not make him wrong about everything else that he said in his life necessarily. Right. Sure. That's a that is a a serious flaw, but it doesn't mean that the Catholic church wasn't corrupt when he, when he called them out. And it doesn't mean that, you know, that, 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 that wasn't true. Uh, so I'm not saying that we, that Luther needs to be canceled, but it wasn't, it was a clarifying education. Yeah. So I am, and I know you got to go, but, um, this just calls to mind one of my longstanding, not quite half baked two three quarters baked points of view, uh, or takes as it were, which is, that I've always believed that, you know, there's this long standing cliche in um, Middle East studies that what mm. the Middle East needs is a Martin Luther. And it's weird. Sometimes, if you read closely, people say, say that sometimes they actually mean Martin Luther King, which I would be like, that would be great. Like, right. we would have peace between Palestinians and Israelis tomorrow if, if Palestinians embraced non, you know, nonviolent stuff. But uh, the, the truth is, is that people, the middle, uh, the Islamic world needs a pope, right? And um, uh, well, uh, both Al Qaeda and uh, ISIS, ISIL agree. They 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 agree with you. Yeah, but the thing is, they're all, but they're all Martin Luthers, right? They're right. like Zwinglians or whatever those good people were. And, Zwingli, and, my people, come um, on, baby, yeah. You know, John Calvin, uh, center square to block. People forget that with the Protestant reformation, there was an enormous amount of iconoclasm and, and rabid sort of theological populism all over the place. And, um, and Islam sort of had the same thing, um, particularly at the fall of the Ottoman empire where all of these purest, you know, yes. Wahhabist kind of things popped up and they, they even tried to like destroy 
I believe the tomb of Muhammad or something like that mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it was um uh it was idol worship or whatever. And the good thing about the Ottomans, good thing about the Catholic Church, all the other things, all the bad things notwithstanding, is they knew when to bend. You know, they right. knew how to like govern an old institution and blah blah blah. Well, and and, and um, also and also as we learned in Iraq, you know, the after after Saddam fell, how how are you going to keep the you know without that kind of authoritarian structure? And I guess this it, this is where the Republicans sort of are now. That's to to dovetail the two topics. Where Republicans are now, they want a daddy to tell them what to do and how to be. Right? They want uh, they they got. They like the strongmanism, right? They liked having Trump tell them, just do that. And they're like, well, I'd like to do something different, but we've got to do what daddy said. And we're going to do that stuff. So they got used to it and they like it. And now they face the sad truth that with the strongman gone, they're going to eventually just have to hash this out themselves and come to the conclusion, which of course was found in the Scottish Enlightenment. And not, I'm not saying that Presbyterianism is the specifically correct answer, but not bad. Yeah, I mean, you can do worse than Presbyterian. John Knox, um, I'm just saying. He was he was a little crazy, <laughs> but, you know, and his beard was definitely, uh, I think he was on fleek, uh, but it was, uh, you know, a lot of good stuff. I remember, and I'll let you go, uh, years ago on NPR, there was a story about how there was a schism in the Unitarian Church, <laughs> which I just love, right? Because Come on. The Unitarianism is, is famously known as the last exit before atheism. And mm-hmm. um, they had, and apparently there were, there was a movement within the Unitarian church that wanted to embrace pantheism and like tree worship and whatnot. Yeah. And, and so they had this guy that they interviewed and you could like, you could, you could hear his ponytail over the phone. <laughs> Um, the, the, the aroma of sandalwood wafted <laughs> through your speakers while he was speaking. I mean, you, it was just like a hippie with man bun just oozed out of every electronic thing in my car. And he's, he's, and he's saying, look, I don't like being put in this position. You know, we are, we are a church that we're faith that embraces everybody. And, you know, and orthodoxy isn't like my bag, but we got to believe in something. <laughs> and, if we just let people come in and be tree worshipers, then we're really not a thing anymore. And uh, I, it's always stuck with me. But I don't well, know yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll get I'll, I'll tell you this so you'll know forever. So the Unitarians, which were an outgrowth of the really the Puritans that came, they they were ideolo- oddly ideological descendants through uh, Walden Pond uh, mm-hmm. of the uh, of the uh, Congregationalists of New England, the descendants of. Uh, the pure uh, of the of the pilgrims, um, so there's there's that path there, and then they married up with the Universalists. So you had the Unitarians, we are all one, and then the Universalists who are like, well, okay, all everyone goes to heaven. So what Universalists uh, Universalists say, we're Christians, but we just think everybody else goes to heaven too. This is just a nice way to live, right? It doesn't matter what you do because everybody goes to heaven, so we can do this. And immediately you create the following problem. Why would I get up early on Sunday right. and, put on, <laughs> and put on a, a, a collared shirt and a blazer to go over to this building with these other people to say like, aren't we nice people? I'm a, are, you seem like such a nice person. I am a nice person too. So this is like scheduling a rotary meeting 
for 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Big mistake. Don't do it. <laughs> and particularly if you're going to get into heaven anyway, right? I mean, that's this is what I'm saying. Like, why, yeah, why yeah. am I here to hang out with you people and smell your coffee breath? I could be, I could be at home. So what's the point of this? And that's why you got to, you got to give people something to chew on something real. And that's what we're going to get from you with the hangover with Chris Starwalt. Uh, yeah. Stay tuned. It'll be out later this week. The first episode. Is that the one with Rick Brookheiser? Or is that uh, you, like- Brooke, yeah. Uh, coming down the pike, you'll have an intro episode. You'll have uh, a long historical view overview with Richard Brookheiser. And then you'll have Eric Cantor with a ringside seat to uh, the experience that th- those will be first out of the gate. All right. Chris, thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. Uh, Really looking forward to it. And um, great to have you on the team, my friend. Thank you, doctor. Okay, so uh, Dr. Steyerwald has left the studio. Uh, Always good to check in with him. And uh, very much looking forward to... I have not listened to it yet. I mean, I've gotten some debriefs from some people about it. But um, uh, very excited about The Hangover. We think that there is going to be a lot in there for everybody, regardless of um, where you come down on some of these questions and uh, maybe even some newsiness to it, but you know, that will leave for another day. Um, and I hope people, I, I really, you know, I, I volunteered this. This is not something Chris asked or, or even Caleb asked for. I volunteered to let Chris use our feed, my, the remnant feed for the first couple episodes or, or more. Um, because it's a hard thing to get out there. We're doing this for all the right reasons. Um, we, for the, for the, uh, for the first couple episodes, you can only find it at the remnant feed, but then we are going to set up its own home where you can subscribe to it, um, and find it and go back to back episodes and all that kind of thing. And, um, I do apologize to anybody who has a major problem with it. I, We'll be honest, if you do have a major problem with it, I very much would like to know what it is because I can't really get my head around why people would be too angry about it. Um, but uh, it is what it is. We're doing it for, we think, all the right reasons, and we think it's going to be great. And um, and I appreciate uh, your uh, patience and indulgence. And I promise for those who um, are truly aggrieved by it, I will make it up to you somehow. I, do, I don't know how quite yet, but I will. Um, and beyond that, uh, lots of great feedback on the anti-Semitism, um, episode and, um, and if you skipped the Friday ruminant, the, the normal solo thing, uh, and you're curious about why this podcast is called the remnant, what the actual sort of intellectual pedigree of the concept is and, and what it means to me and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you might want to go back and listen to the last third or so of it. I, I don't know exactly where the entry point is. Um, because, uh, um, I get asked every now and then about it and I realize I get new listeners who don't know the backstory or haven't heard it. And, um, so I figured I would lay it out a little bit and that's what I did. So if you, if you skip that one, you might want to go check that out. And other than that, uh, thanks everybody for tuning in and, um, I'll see you next time. Bro, no you won't. This is a podcast.